uh, before that, we have Luke 18, 31 through 43, and it says this, and he took the 12 aside and told them, see, we are going to go up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. This is Jesus talking about what was about to happen. So it was an awesome moment in their ministry. Then they understood none of these things. Isn't that interesting that the disciples who were walking with him for so long in this moment, they didn't understand any of what he was talking about. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Verse 35, and as he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging, hearing the crowd passing by. Listen to the language here. Try to, try to, if you need to, if you're a shapes and colors person like I am, shut your eyes for a moment and get this picture because this is what we're going to kind of settle in this morning. And as he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front told him to keep quiet, but he kept, out, he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? It's a weird question. He's blind. What do you think he wants? <laughs> Lord, he said, I want to see. And then he says, receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see, and he began to follow him, glorifying God, praising God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And this morning, as we continue on in our series, The Violence of Good, I want to speak to you from the subject, Too Close for Comfort. Too Close for Comfort. As we discover what it looks like to live a life of discomfort in order to make a difference in the world around us. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for this moment that we have to hear from your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us right now. Teach us right now. Help us understand what it is that you want to say to us. Challenge our hearts. Challenge our mindsets. Do a new work in us, God. I thank you for your church, not the four walls, but the beautiful tapestry of people that you are bringing together all across this valley to lift your name high. So we love you. We worship you. We give you all the praise in this moment. In Jesus' mighty name, come on and everybody shouted. Amen. Amen. I, I did Bible college in Australia, and uh, it was an amazing time. I, I loved it. Anybody been to Australia before? A few, few of you? Okay, a lot of you. Awesome. So you would know. It's, a, it's an amazing place. Like if you're going to do college, like if you're going to go to college and study abroad, I highly suggest Australia. And uh, I remember mornings where I used to show up to class like right on time, still dripping wet from like morning sessions surfing because I learned how to surf there. I'd show up in my board shorts. I'd get insane amounts of trouble um, because it was, it was waves and sand and sun and Jesus. Like that was my college <laughs> life. It was awesome. Um, and so one particular afternoon, I'll never forget though, I was, uh, it was summertime. Uh, I only came back after one, like I stayed there for my first year, came back home, hung out for a little bit, and then I decided... Uh, why do I want to leave Australia during the summertime to go back to Seattle during the wintertime? Um, that's crazy, so we're not doing that anymore. Um, so I stayed in Australia, and during the summertime, I would work, and I would surf. That's just what I did. Work, surf, and longboard all over the, all over the city. It was, a, it was a good life then. I was living my best life. And so, so one particular afternoon, I got home from the beach, and uh, I came running into the house in my board shorts, and uh, just that, just my board shorts. I got back from surfing. Um, my buddies who I was living with, they were, we had a three-story flat in the, in the downtown Sydney area. And uh, so I got home, we were hanging out, and I decided that uh, I was going to have some leftover spaghetti, 
and uh, head upstairs and, and watch, some, watch some TV and just kind of settle in for the night. So I got my, got my spaghetti ready, and I headed upstairs with my bowl of spaghetti, got to the third floor. We, on the third floor, we had a TV and like a big sectional couch, and that's where we would hang out. Guys would just hang out up there, and we'd have a lot of fun. And so no one was on the third floor with me. I was just chilling on the couch in my board shorts with a bowl of spaghetti, as you do in college. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was my best college life. And so as I was sitting there, it was summertime, it was hot, and usually summertime brings flies around, right? We, we all know that. And so I was sitting there, and I felt this tickle on my shoulder. And so I swatted, thinking it was just a fly, not paying attention. I was watching TV, and swatted, went away, and then just went back to pouring in the, the spaghetti into my face. And about five minutes went by, and all of a sudden, I swatted again. I felt a tickle on my shoulder. And swatted again, and I was like, stop it, fly. Shoe fly, don't bother me. And so sat there for a little bit longer, and all of a sudden, the tickle turned into... That's a greater weight on my shoulder than a fly. But instead of, instead of swatting, the curiosity in me said, you should turn and look to see what is on your shoulder. And as I turned to look to see what was on my shoulder, they have these things in Australia called huntsman spiders. They, they live in your house. They live with you um, and amongst you and in places you probably don't want to know. And so a huntsman spider, a good huntsman spider in your home, doesn't have the, the most gigantic body, but it's got a leg span that these spiders can get to the, about the size of your hand. And so as I turn to look, there's this spider perched on my shoulder looking at me. And he's like, who's living their best life now? <laughs> and this spider is on my shoulder. And it was in that moment that I didn't swat. I went into full panic mode. Because let's be honest, most men turn into girls in this moment, okay? And so I was like, ah! and I just like, I lost my mind in that moment. I didn't swat, I jumped, I'm like in my board shirt, and I'm in the corner now after this spider's flung from my shoulder. I'm in the corner in fetal position, just losing my mind over the fact that there was this huntsman spider on me. And I'm yelling, like, ah! just losing it. And going crazy, and so my Australian buddy, he comes up, and he's like, spider, eh, mate? And I was like, shut your mouth. <laughs> Have you ever heard the term too close for comfort? It was in that moment that I realized that that spider was way too close for comfort. Way too close. And, and a spider that large was way too close comfort. See, many times we use this phrase to describe that which we do not appreciate or like that has somehow found proximity to our lives, especially when it comes to dangerous situations, dangerous things that the Lord has somehow created. I don't know why, like in my case, being attacked by a spider. But as I think upon my life and the moments that I've had that have elicited this phrase from my mouth, I realize that there are moments where comfort is no longer possible because it is in fact, too close for comfort. And here's what I want to drive home today, is that there's a part of us that if we're not careful, we can get really comfortable in our faith. We can get really comfortable for, with Jesus. We can get really comfortable with church. We can get really comfortable with how things are going. And I want to, I want to encourage us this morning, and I want to challenge us this morning, that God's God's design for our life is to get so close to us that we actually live uncomfortably. See, what it means to, to say that was too close for comfort 
is actually this idea that because this spider was perched on my shoulder, I no longer could just be comfortable. Come on, somebody. If you know what I'm talking about. If you have a spider, if you're sitting in your living room with board shorts on, shirtless, and there's a spider perched on, you no longer can be comfortable. You're not sitting there enjoying the moment. You're not enjoying your spaghetti. You're not enjoying the TV that you're watching. Why? Because something is so close to you that you no longer have the ability to live comfortably in that moment. And here's this reality that we see play out as Jesus is walking along with his disciples and the crowd that has come around him is that they were so comfortable that they missed the point. They were so comfortable that they missed the blind man sitting on the side of the road. They were so comfortable, check this out, following Jesus, that they missed the mission of Jesus. And I wonder if we're there. I wonder if we're so comfortable in our faith, if we're so comfortable in our culture, if we're so comfortable in our society, and we're so comfortable following Jesus that we miss the mission of Jesus. That we, that we pass by every opportunity that he has for us because we're so focused on what we want from him. And so I want to challenge this this morning. I want to look at some different perspectives that we need to understand in order to no longer live comfortably. And I think if we're brutally honest with ourselves, comfort tends to be the driving force behind the lion's share of our activity in life. Would you agree with me? Can we just be honest in church this morning? Because I would say that there's so many moments in my life that I get up and, and I spend my day doing what? Trying to make sure that I make decisions and do things that drive what? Comfort. See, not very many of us wake up and go, hey, today, I want to be uncomfortable. Right? Like most of us, like we get up and I'm like, today, sweatpants day. That's a comfortable day. Come on, somebody. That's a, that's a comfortable moment. I just want to have sweatpants on. I want to drink my coffee. Like, I don't want to be bothered by anything. I just want to read a nice book. But that's not life. But we drive in so many different ways, right? We work in order to earn money so that we can earn enough money to do what? Hopefully spend it on things that make us comfortable, right? When we go buy pants, none of us go like, I'm going to buy uncomfortable pants today, (laughs) right? Like, I don't try to go fit into a 32-size pant. Why? Because that's insanely uncomfortable. And no one wants to see my thighs. Right? We don't do things that naturally drive discomfort in our lives. We do this in relationships too, don't we? Think about it. We sweep issues underneath the rug, frustrations, anger, fear, hard things under the carpet so that we don't have to face what we would call uncomfortable conversations. We choose the most comfortable people as possible for friends in order to maintain stability and comfort in our relational lives. We do this in our jobs, activities, you name it, we look for comfort. And we do this in our faith as well. We have found ways to make faith in Jesus, which is inherently uncomfortable, comfortable. We sanitize and anesthetize that which is supposed to be potent and powerful in order to make it palatable and pleasant. All to support comfort. So the beloved writer and author C.S. Lewis would write this, of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable discomfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay and is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. 
See, in religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get looking for it. If you look for the truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with and in the end despair. I think C.S. Lewis was on to something. And as we read this moment in Jesus' ministry, I can't help but be struck by the effects of comfort that I see at work in this crowd's life. Now, I understand what it means to be zoned in. Have you ever been zoned in before? Like where you're so zoned in on something that you don't see certain things. But there's a difference between being zoned in and being comfortable. And so I want to look today at this comfort issue. And I think the problem with comfort is it tends to cause us to not see what is right in front of us. And here's the truth that I want us to understand before we dig into these points. The truth is, is that the man that was blind had greater sight in the situation than those who could actually see. And I'm going to prove it to you as we look through these points. I want to look at three truths that we need to understand this morning about comfort. I need you to work with me. Come on, every shot number one. First one is this. You with me so far? First one is this. What we don't know intimately, we tend to define inaccurately. Let me say that one more time. What we don't know intimately, we tend to define inaccurately. Watch this, Luke 18, 35 through 30. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Check this out. This is what the crowd says. This is what his disciples are a part of the crowd. Watch what they say. Jesus of Nazareth. Is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This has always struck me as I've listened, as I've watched this scripture play out, and as I've read this so many times. The crowd defines Jesus one way. The blind man who had a need in his life defined him a complete and total way. The crowd told him how to define him, but the blind man's need told him how to call out to him. We see two different titles used to describe Jesus in the interaction between blind Bartimaeus and the crowd. Jesus of Nazareth. Check this out. This is the place where Jesus is from. Jesus, son of David, this was a regal and authoritative designation that was tied to the promises God had given about Jesus in and through the Old Testament of the Bible, that he would be healer, that he would be Lord, that he would be Savior, that he would do good works. It's interesting to me that the crowd just saw Jesus according to where he was from. The man with no sight saw Jesus as he was. And this shows that the crowd did not have an intimate knowledge of who Jesus was. And I think that this is a product of comfort. I think there are so many times that we tend to default in our faith to this place. See, we define Jesus where he's from rather than who he is. We see Jesus as the character of a book that we occasionally read when we're trying to be a better person rather than a savior to be followed as we submit our lives to his leadership. Come on, anybody with me this morning? Like I said, I want, I want to push us this morning. See, when we don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus, we tend to designate him in a way that does not accurately define him. Here's the problem. Many Christians are running around defining Jesus for the world around them, yet they don't have intimate knowledge of who he is. Because if we had intimate knowledge of who he is, we would define him differently in the world around us. 
We would define him differently for the people that are hurting and the people that are broken and the people that are needing Jesus. And the problem is, is that so many times we define Jesus in such a way that doesn't help people. Because for many of us, we're defining him as we see him, not as we know him. Come on, somebody. This is why the psalmist tells us in Psalm 73, 28, but as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. Notice that our ability to tell people who God is and to, and to talk about who God is is not through another Bible study. It's through an intimate interaction with Jesus. I've been married to my wife for 14 years now. 14 amazing years. And I can talk about my wife in ways that no one else can. Come on, that's good news right there. <laughs> if somebody's like, who is Erica Parrish? Oh, I can just start giving you lists. She is this and she is that. But more than just descriptors of her, I can explain who she is. I can explain what she's capable of. I can talk about the way she nurtures our children and the way that she gracefully loves people. I can talk about the way that she walks into a room and she commands authority because of the way that she sees things. I can talk about how she operates in life. Why? Because I have intimate knowledge of who she is. I think this is what we need with Jesus. See, we try and describe him outside of allowing him to first define us. There's no intimacy. He's not personal to us. He's the object of our intellect, not the Lord of our life. And there's a massive difference between the two. See, the crowd shows us what it looks like to follow an idea, a nice feeling, the popular and exciting tide. Blind Bartimaeus shows us what it means to recognize Christ for who he is in the midst of our blindness and brokenness and to cry out to him, have mercy on me. It's interesting to me that blind Bartimaeus, the beggar by the side of the road, could designate Jesus as who he was by crying out to him, have mercy on me. But for the crowd that was following him and the disciples that had been around him, they simply said, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Come on, anybody with me this morning? And so the first thing that we, under, we need to understand is that at the end of the day, it comes to intimacy. What we don't know intimately, we tend to define inaccurately. Number two, come on, shot number two. The second thing is this. What we don't recognize in ourselves, we tend to rebuke in others. Oh, <laughs> now we're going to dig a little bit more. What we don't recognize in ourselves, we tend to rebuke in others. Check this out. So he called out. Other translate, he cried out, Jesus, son of David. And there's an exclamation point. So called out isn't the best. Like, I don't really like that term. Other, other translations give us better terms because, look, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, exclamation point. I shout the minute I get a microphone. Okay? <laughs> For those of you who might be like, why is he yelling all the time? It's just what it is. <laughs> he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He shouts at exclamation point. Then those in front told him, keep quiet. Now, I love, his, I love his rebellious streak, but he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me, exclamation point. 
the ESV version of the Bible would say this, that they rebuked him. Not just told him to keep quiet, but they rebuked him. And that, that term rebuke is a harsh and powerful term. The connotation carries with it an element of frustration, disdain, and impatience. See, the blind man was interrupting their process. He was getting in the way of where they were going. He was interrupting their calendared event. His problem was getting in the way of their destination. You ever been there before? Come on, let's just be honest in church this morning. Have you ever been frustrated by somebody's problem because it's getting in the way of your process? My kids do it to me all the time. I'm like, get out of my way. I'm trying to get somewhere. And they're small enough to be able to do that still. Right? You ever had a friend? Come on. A friend with the same problem? Is this therapy this morning for some of us? Some of you are like, oh, I know what you're talking about. And the friend that keeps on bringing up the same thing over and over and over again, and you're like, would you get over it already? Because I'm trying to get here. You ever been there before when someone or something gets in the way of where you're trying to go? Have you ever realized that the anger that we experience when someone cuts us off in traffic is not because we feel in danger, but rather because we feel entitled to move faster than everybody else. Think about it. I've never once gotten angry when someone cut off at me like, oh, you just made me almost lose my life. Never. My only, I take, the only issue I have when you cut me off in traffic is that you got in my way of where I was going in a way that potentially damages my vehicle. And I get it, it's human nature. Yet I think that we make and give too much space for that human nature. Or what the Bible would describe as flesh. We let it get in the way of what God desires for us to do and to be spirit-led. See, the funny thing about being spirit-led is it's not about our feelings and emotions. See, being spirit-led for many of us, we think it's like, if I'm spirit-led by God, it's like I feel good about everything that I'm doing all the time. Right? Like, if the Spirit of God is leaving, I'm like, yes, I'll do anything and everything that you want me to, Jesus. Yes, just take me where you would have me go. <laughs> and you feel that, you got all the, all the hashtag feels about it, and you're feeling good about everything. Did you know Spirit-led people so many times are doing it out of submission? There are so many times when I talk to people, and I'm like, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> now you're asking, does he shout all the time, and is he really a pastor? <laughs> Come on, no, I'm a human being. Come on, somebody. For many of us, we struggle in this because we think that being spirit-led by God all the time is about feeling good about everything that we're doing. Mm -mm. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and what's the last one? Self-control. But we glaze over that one. Why? Because there are many moments when God's leading me to do something that I don't want to do, and I do it in submission, not out of desire. Can I be honest with you guys this morning? This is my tendency to try to be really honest. I did not want to launch the downtown campus. I love you all. But as a human being, I did not want to do it. Why? Because I want to be around everybody all the time. 
I want to know everybody, and I want to be able to hug everybody, and I want to be able to say, welcome to church, everybody, and, like, and just be pumped all the time. Like, I want my friends who I do ministry and life with around me. Like, I want Pastor Andrew around me all the time. Who doesn't want Pastor Andrew around him all the time? Right? Like, I want that. But did you know what? I had to submit to something greater than my feelings. I had to submit to God's plan and purpose. I had to submit to God saying, listen, there's a whole other reach that we have to have as the well. And so it can't just be the well Sandy. It's got to be the well Sandy and the well downtown and the well here and the well there and the well everywhere. Why? It goes beyond our feelings to live submitted lives. But what we don't recognize in ourselves, we tend to rebuke in others. And the problem that we see right here in Scripture play out is that there was a crowd of people following Jesus. And they rebuked a blind man who was crying out to him and calling out to him and was impassioned to know Jesus. They rebuked him because they didn't see the same passion in themselves. Come on. Comfort. The problem that we see at work because of comfort is that the blind man was crying out to Jesus in a way that was foreign to them due to lack of experience. James deals with this in James 4, 1 through 8. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So that you may spend it on your pleasures. Wow. I see this happen in friendship, dating, singles. If you're, if you're in the house today, married couples, if you're in the house today, this happens all the time. But I especially see this in dating, like couples that are dating and singles, right? As one person in the group of the relationship starts to get passionate about their faith and others start to try and rebuke that faith, by using separatist language and judgment. You used to. You ever noticed this before? You used to be our friend because you would go to the club with us. But now you're not going to the club with us and you're passionate about this Jesus guy and going to church, which kind of seems like a club. <laughs> And occasionally the people are weirder than people who are drunk, but that's a whole other subject matter. <laughs> but you used to do this. You used to do that. And this happens, like, when everybody in the group calls themselves a Christ follower. But one gets passionate. One stops standing, and they start bowing before Jesus. And all, the, all of a sudden, everybody else in your friendship group or that, that guy that you're dating or that girl that you're dating, they're like, no, 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 can you just keep it at, like, level four because level ten is not doing what I needed to do for me. Come on. Can I tell all the single girls in the house, get a guy that's at level ten. Right? Here, here's the deal. Have a dude in your life who's blind Bartimaeus. Guys in the house, get a girl who's blind, not Bartimaeus because he was a dude, but <laughs> blind sheep. Anybody, anybody realize what I'm talking about here? Married couples, don't rebuke each other 
when one's getting passionate about Jesus, because it's messing with things, I pray that we're the type of church that we're all passionate about Jesus. That we don't rebuke. You know, you know when people come in, into church sometimes, and everybody else is kind of like, there's another in the fire. Standing next to me. This is a good song. And some of us will be like, there's another in the fire. Holding back the seas. But then there's the person, there's another in. And they sound just off and horrible. Their hands are lifted high. And they're praising their way through a problem. And they're praising their way through a situation. Come on, we got to be the type of church that says, oh, okay, hey, like, I know what you're doing over here, and I'm going to support that, because so many times, even we as Christ followers can look over with a cornered eye and be like, why are they being so loud on Sunday morning over here? You don't know what they're facing. You don't know what problem they're praising their way through. You do not know what situation that they're worshiping their way through. We got to be the type of church that raises the faith level, and we don't rebuke people because we don't see it in ourselves see it in ourselves is it possible that we're rebuking people's faith because we covet their faith <laughs> I hope to be the type of people that we can pull others up to our level of faith a level of hope who Jesus is and what he's capable of in our lives number three every shout number three the last one is this okay can I just cut us a little bit more <laughs> Everybody's like, please don't let him preach again. I hate that guy. Number three, what we don't stop for tells us what we don't stand for. What we don't stop for tells us what we don't stand for. Probably some of the most potent words that we will read in this piece of scripture, Luke 18, verse 40, Jesus stopped. And what bothers me about that moment is that Jesus had to stop first. Think about that. And I would love to read that the disciples stopped. That the crowd stopped. But Jesus had to stop. Because the crowd and the disciples were too busy rebuking. They were too busy trying to get to where they were going and Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him and what's interesting to me is that why did Jesus have to command it to be done you would think that the minute Jesus stopped everyone would be like get this get the blind man he'd been healing people already this wasn't foreign we're getting to the very moment we're entering into the last few weeks of Jesus's life they had been with him for years you would think that normal protocol would be sick person, blind person, leprous person, hurting person, get them to Jesus. We all show up to our jobs every day and we repeat, right? Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. We do the same thing every single day. These disciples, these crowds had witnessed Jesus do amazing things and Jesus had to stop. Here's the truth. We can get so fixated on Jesus that we miss the people that Jesus is fixated on. And we, we wrap it up with nobility. I'm just, I'm just passionate about doctrine and theology. But if your doctrine and theology separates you from the people that Jesus is passionate about, I don't care about your doctrine and theology. 
I'm passionate about learning the Greek and the Hebrew. Fantastic. Learn about your city. Learn about your neighbor. Because last time I checked, in the Greek and the Hebrew, it says the same thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Come on, am I talking to the church this morning? Am I talking to the church that God said, I will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? The church that's called to be effective in this generation. The church that's called to love people. The church that's called to stop when there's a blind person on the side of the road that's saying, son of David, have mercy on me. To stop when the person is broken and hurting from insecurities and fears. To stop and invite the person to church even when they disagree with your ideology, theology, and doctrine. We can't sanitize the church. We can't anesthetize the church. The church is the place where those who are broken and hurting, those who are coming from every walk, every walk, every, every walk <laughs> of life. Like, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know about that. I said this in Sandy a couple weeks ago. If we have the ability to leave our purses and our wallets and our man bags and our iPads on our seats and not think twice about it, I would challenge whether we're doing what we should be doing. Come on, church. We don't, we don't say we're a church for the city for nothing. It's not a fancy slogan. The violence of good is when we live lives that are uncomfortable. When we live lives we're out of our element. When we are in the great adventure that Jesus has called us to. And here's the thing that is probably the most disturbing out of all of this. And then we're going to pray. And then I want to do something. I want to invite you back tonight. Because tonight... We're going to have a ministry kind of night. I'm going to preach this message again, but then we're going to have a night of, like, we're going to pray, we're going to worship. And for many of us right now, you may be feeling in yourself like, man, this, this, this message is challenging me. I want, we're going to do some work tonight. We're going to allow God to heal some things in us. We're going to allow God to change our perspective. We're going to allow God to do some things, but I want it to sit with us today. I want it to, like, rub a little bit on these. I was, I was writing these points down, and I was like, oh, this hurts me too. Why? Because I'm human. Human. The violence of good is when we learn to live lives that are uncomfortable for the sake of the glory of God. And I pray that our church, the well, this church all across our valley now can be the type of church, check it out, that doesn't have the crowd, but it's full of blind Bartimaeuses. Because you're one. I'm one. We're all one. At the end of the day, every single one of us is really represented in who blind Bartimaeus was on the side of the road. I don't want to be the crowd. Because here's the deal. In just a couple weeks, that same crowd turned into a mob. That same crowd who was following Jesus and was all about it and everything like that, and they were just super pumped about who Jesus was, they were the same one that say, put him on a cross. 
blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. Come on, would you stand to your feet?